Is it us or is it the metaverse? Where are we? Is it ChatGPT taking over? No, no, no. We're in the green room for Disrupt TV. So welcome, everybody. Um, and I'm here with my awesome co-host, co-founder, Vala Ashar, our amazing producer, L. And of course, we're going to do introductions. So John, what are we talking about today and where are you coming in from? Coming no. in from Northampton. No, it's back. Don't worry. Coming in from Northampton, Mass., going to give Ray a hard time about Davos, then we're going to deconstruct the industrial metaverse. Davos, as Holger says. Rebecca, where are we coming in from? What are you talking about today? Yeah, I'm coming in from the Silicon Valley area, and I'm going to be talking about Silicon Heartland. I'm a Heartlander myself. Cool. Awesome. I'm from Pennsylvania. I don't know if that counts. We, we have to be West and talk about pop instead of soda <laughs> to qualify for Heartland. All right, Crawford, where are we calling in from? What are we talking about today? Good to see you guys. Crawford Del Prep, president of IDC. I'm coming in from lovely Needham, Massachusetts, just west of Boston, and uh, looking forward to talk about overall IT spending trends as we see them shaping up for 2023. Our annual overview from IDC. Amazing. All right, cool. With that, back to you, L, for the countdown, and we're about to start the show. All right. Three, two, Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best uh, to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling <laughs> author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. You see him every day. It feels like every day, Ray, I see you on business and technology TV, on Bloomberg, on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, the NBC. He's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. With my here with my awesome co-host, Fala Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist of Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and exciting and insightful tweets. When he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses at ZDNet. But I have to say one thing. Vala is one of the best interviewers you can find. I was lucky to be on a show with him the other day, Thursday, amazing insights. And of course, it's not about us, it's about our amazing guests. Who do we have to kick it off again in our annual fashion? It, it's, you say annual fashion, uh, he's one of our favorite guests on the show. This is episode 308, and by the end of today, we have interviewed 954 guests. 
But our second guest ever on Disrupt TV is our next guest, Crawford Del Pret, president of IDC. Thank you. Crawford was on our show February of 2016. He helped launch our show. So we're forever grateful to Crawford. Crawford was appointed president of IDC in February of 2019. Prior to that, Crawford served as a chief operating officer and prior to that, chief research officer throughout his leadership. IDC has established a leading position as the world's most prominent trusted technology market intelligence provider. Crawford is leading authority on the IT industry and has com completed extensive research on the structure and evolution of information technology industry. He's frequently coded. It's like you, Ray. He's on TV all the time. He's on He's all major on publications. You see him on Bloomberg, Technology TV, and again, all major media outlets. Again, second interview in the history of Disrupt TV. So he's a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee into Disrupt TV. <laughs> you can follow him on Twitter at Craw, C-R-A-W. Again, early adopter. You know, uh, welcome back, Craw. To Great to see you guys. Thanks for having me. It's such Great a pleasure. Great really looking forward you. to catching up with you guys. Look, it's amazing. We are in a massive amount of disruption. Your conference is tech to scale the digital business. You're going to be talking about how to navigate the storms of disruption in this golden age of tech. Before we go there, talk about what you see as that landscape, because you guys put together the forecasts, the data models that the industry relies on. What does it look like? Because I'm confused. Are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? Is the yeah. chip market dead? Is the software business coming back? What's going on? Okay, Ray, here, here you go. I'm going to make you a little like wallet index go. <laughs> <laughs> chip market, not dead. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the IT market will continue to grow. I, I, you know, and, 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 and the economy, are we in a recession? Maybe. We'll find out in over the next couple of quarters. But if we are in a recession, it's probably not going to be a very deep recession. And, and, and I think the legacy of what we're seeing in the market is that uh, like we saw in the downturn in 2019, sorry, in 2020, when COVID hit, is that mm -hmm. even you know, in the past, and we've seen this many times before, when you know GDP you know, gets the sniffles, IT gets pneumonia. And IT just collapses. And, and that's really not what's happened in 2020. And it's not what's going to happen this time. So right now, we're still looking at a scenario that says we're going to see uh, IT spending somewhere between 3 and 5% this year. And, and I think right now, we're probably trending toward the low end of that, of that band. Um, GDP is probably going to be around 1% to 2%. And so once again, you're going to see that IT is going to outpace GDP. That is different than what happened in 2000. It's different than what mm -hmm. happened in 2008. Um, and this is a, a big trend. This is this golden era of IT. And what we're seeing is that uh, we had a platform dislocation. We had a platform dislocation about 15 years ago, and that was the emergence of cloud and of mobile. And that meant that we had to rethink our relationship with technology and how we evolved and built our software. We had to build it for the cloud. We had to build it for mobile. And we believe if you plot that as an S-curve, we are at that sweet spot of the S-curve. We are in this era of multiplied innovation where we are seeing technology transform every single industry. And that means that if you look at a category like infrastructure as a service, I get it. Azure was slower than people expected, but we still growth in the last, this past week with the announcement at Microsoft, but we still, are seeing 20% growth for infrastructure as a service. If you look at SaaS, we expect that we'll see 
low double digit, high single digit growth for SaaS this year. So let's call it 10% just for the sake of the discussion. And that includes, by the way, software. So all, all different flavors of software. So we are seeing that people are continuing in this downturn to invest in tech. So what are they doing? Right, what are they doing? Well, if you're building hardware right now, particularly consumer hardware or hardware that is related to um, devices, you're, you're getting creamed right now. Um, you yeah, know, yeah. We're, we're, we're basically pushing, we pulled forward two, two and a half years of demand uh, during COVID in PC and in mobile devices. Those, th th that's a tough business to be in right now. Yeah. But if you're uh, helping companies build their next generation uh, digital technology, we're still seeing a significant amount of demand out there. If it if there's a payback associated with it, customers want to invest in it. So uh, your your Twitter feed and IDC very regularly publishes global trends across these different yep. technology segments. The, um, this is all January, uh, right from uh, your social feed. Uh, yep. Top tier North America distribu distributors reported uh, revenues of twenty almost twenty two billion in Q four. Yeah. of 2022 it was about a 1.1.8 percent decline but if you saw if you read into a 23 percent decline in personal computing right uh which was largely offset by double digit growth in in storage and security and network infrastructure somewhere between 12 to 30 percent in these other categories so computing personal computing was what drove the, 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 the modest decline. Smartphones, worldwide smartphone shipments declined 18% year over year to about 300 million units in Q4. In Q4 alone, and we expect they'll drop about 11% in revenue this coming year. So, okay. so again, you know, just a really, really tough market if you're making devices. Um, because you know what? You know what it is, Vala? It's just so easy for a family or for a company to basically say, you know what, we're going to stretch the life of those devices. We're going to push them out another year. Um, and if you, if you think about a family, right, a family that's spending on technology, it's all one big bag of money that a family has, right? And that bag of money, you know, we're competing with high gas prices. We're competing with uh, high food prices. We're competing with, you know, inflation, basically, in all these different segments. It, money's got to come from somewhere to yeah. fuel those higher price things. And chances are it's it, one of the areas it can come from is consumer electronics and, and, yeah. and device spend. Now, again, forecasting other categories, for example, cloud, yep. uh, your forecast worldwide revenue for enterprise applications will grow to 385 billion by yeah. 2026, a five-year KGAR of 8%. And you said a lot, a lot of that growth investments is coming in the public cloud software. And I believe what we're going to hear at your March 7th Boston uh, IDC Directions Conference and March 21st conference in Santa Clara, there's a big, bold statement that says spending on digital technology by organizations will grow at eight times the economy this year, 2023. Mm -hmm. So there's still incredible optimism in terms of business transformation using technology. 100%. Um, people are still leaning into technology, and that's why we expect to see technology spending actually grow, even in a world where we may see a relatively shallow um, uh, recession. So let me let, let, let me throw th th this out at you, and that is that in December, we asked a very, very pointed question to CIOs. We asked them, what, what budget, uh, what, what, what area of spending is immune to your budget? next year? What, what do you have to spend on? And guess what came back? Security, data and analytics, infrastructure, 
customer wow. experience. Those were the top four categories wow. that came back and said, I can't cut spending on those. Otherwise, I'm going to be facing a potential uh, uh, un, uh, un, unsecure risk to my organization or the potential disruption of a better fend, uh, uh, of a better funded competitor who can create a digital service that I just simply don't have. So, you know, again, we, we're, we're in a, you know, I think a lot of people forget about this and that a lot of the spending that we're seeing is kind of the final insult from COVID. And that does the pullback that we're seeing. And, 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 and that's, that the, is that's the takeaway today. But, well, we, we, we went away, right? We had these massive tailwinds in technology. We had this massive pull forward. Well, now as we're rotating back to a more normal environment, what do we have? Well, we have a situation where infrastructure hasn't been invested in on campuses for a long time. And we have a supply chain shortage. So you're seeing great, you know, huge backlog. Great performance yep. by the enterprise infrastructure folks, and they're, they, they've seen great spending in the second half um, of last year. We're seeing companies continuing to invest, but we're also seeing the impact of all this money that we pumped into the economy, and that caused inflation. That caused, a, and, and you know, what, what, what do they say about inflation, right? It goes up like a rocket, and it comes down like a feather. And it's going to take a while for us to get inflation under control. Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing this overhang, and that overhang is affecting some of very, very large categories that move the needle. And, you know, people ask about, well, PCs are that, about that big. I challenge you. I challenge you to think about a device that costs... Uh, over a thousand dollars at retail, and a lot of times cost two thousand. That basically every man, woman, and child on planet Earth in the industrialized world needs to get their device done. And by the way, has a three to five year life cycle. That is a that's a category that generates a lot of revenue, and and and, and people forget about that uh, on on a regular basis. I just got my M2 MacBook Pro. I can tell you, yes. <laughs> so, I'm contributing to the economy here somewhere. Absolutely, um, but, Ray, and we we say thank you. And I'm guessing about forty percent of humanity is still not on the internet. I mean, I think we yeah. passed the fifty percent yeah. mark yeah. only a couple of years ago. Yeah, we 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 have a long way to go, and we're going to bring a lot of people on. And 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 as we bring them on, you know, they're they're it, it, that's that that's going to help. Uh, but but honestly, you know, now we're getting down to really. In, in the terms of bringing those people on the internet, it's really about bringing connectivity to a lot of those uh, pe people around the world. And, and, and that'll happen. But what really moves the needle is this industrialized world. Yeah. You know, and, and so what we're not seeing is really an IT slowdown. We're actually seeing a normalization of IT spend. And IT is now part of that critical infrastructure that's needed. It's, it's no longer, it can't be ignored because we are moving into that age of digitization. So, so those are big trends, right, that you've been talking about here. Um, some of the other trends that you're talking about, I mean, really impact like industries and, and the workforce and what's happening there. Let's talk about those that, that you're seeing as, you know, picking up for 2023 beyond what we think of the great resignation or the refactoring. There's something between automation at machine scale and tying that back to human scale. Yeah, absolutely. And so and so what we're seeing, Ray, is we're we're seeing and, 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 and we think this is going to be a big story in 2023. And that is, you know, how do uh, CIOs take dollars away from projects that are necessarily that, that are that are that are that are running the business? How do they apply automation to those projects? And then how do they move resources to new 
uh, projects so that they can continue to invest. And I think that, it, again, it's those projects that deliver that immediate or that very, very in, you know, near-term horizon ROI that are going to get the highest attention. So this is where, you know, kind of tough to make an argument to invest in sort of next generation metaverse you know, kind of stuff long-term. <laughs> but if I can, you know, apply automation and if I can really start thinking about um, how I can uh, get my order to close rate faster, how I can think about engaging my customers um, in a new way and in an automated way uh, in order to get them to move to 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 uh, the next stage of the buying cycle, that is is going to be an immediate yep. um, payback. Um, obviously, you know, we're also seeing some huge macro trends here in manufacturing that have been in play, have been moving for the last eight to 10 years, which is, you know, the electrification of cars, um, the, the, the infrastructure to build that out. Those companies can't stop investing. And no, oh, by the way, I'm not just talking about Tesla, but I'm talking about all the traditional um, uh, car companies that we all know about as they make their pivot. Well, guess what? They're going to need to invest in new manufacturing. They're going to invest in new infrastructure. And that means investing in technology to change that uh, entire infrastructure, but ultimately to build a new kind of bond with their customers. That happens with technology. So as you, if you can't tell, I'm super optimistic about technology. You know, is it going to be a great year for tech? No, it's not. We're going to see a, a normalization, as you say, Ray, but tech matters more than ever before. And if you yep. don't invest uh, in it, you're going to have a real issue going forward. I see you traveling the globe and meeting with all your incredible IDC staff. I'm assuming the analyst community is probably north of 1,500. You, you seem to have a, a great bond and, and, uh, and, and fondness. Tell us about IDC. How it just, when, I, when I see your social thread, it just feels like you're loving what you're doing. <laughs> I really do. Look, I'm, I am incredibly grateful to be working with this team. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've invested a very, very long uh, amount of time. And we, at, to, to your point, Ray, we have, um, you know, over, over uh, 1,300 analysts around the world. Um, and, you know, from a, uh, we're in 52 countries around the world. We, wow. we, we research, you know, over 110 countries. And uh, it has been my privilege and it continues to be my privilege. And we are, uh, we have made our pivot, right? We are, we are making our pivot to change the way the world thinks about the impact of technology on business and society. And we live that every single day. And we are pivoting to new categories in the, mm -hmm. in the tech vendor space. And we're acquiring companies. Uh, in April of 22, we acquired a company called Metri out of the Netherlands. Uh, last year, we acquired a company called ETBS, really all in the IT benchmarking um, and IT optimization wow. space. And we believe that what IT buyers really need today is to is to uh, focus on uh, what is the ROI I'm getting from technology? How can I benchmark my investments in technology and my performance in technology? Uh, you know, how fast do I respond to an incident, for example, compared to companies like me? And this has been a great strategy. Uh, we are doing super, super well uh, across all of our areas. And then, uh, uh, you know, we will continue to invest in that space. The other area where we're, where we're investing dramatically is in our data. Um, we are building mm -hmm. out next generation uh, data sets around uh, channel partner ecosystems, around mm -hmm. understanding buying wow. trends down to the customer level, around understanding uh, uh, the emergence of new technologies. And, and we've We've put all that together into a unified data cube, if you will, in order to really find those connected insights between technology in order to understand. So, so what, what, what does all that mean in, like, in real life? 
if you're a company that's entering a new category, how do you come to IDC and understand who are my competitors going to be? What partnerships should I be thinking about? How do I think about creating the right ecosystem for this category? And, and again, the golden era of tech. So as tech continues to hit this sweet spot, we want to be that go-to source for all that information. My company is a customer of yours, and we love the <laughs> insights. You absolutely shape the way we go to market. So keep doing what you're doing. It's uh, You're truly a trusted trusted partner. Really appreciate it. And again, grateful for the team every single day and grateful for, for all of your partnership. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. no, in the collegial world of analysts, I mean, this is amazing. Crawford stands out among the rest. I mean, IDC is going to be building an amazing data model that is going to be unlike any other. We talk about data-driven digital networks. I mean, IDC is sitting at the heart of that data and those insights yeah. are going to be pretty powerful. Totally. We're here with Crawford Del Pratt, president of IDC our guest number two for Disrupt TV. And more importantly, you can follow him on Twitter at Craw, C-R-A-W. Happy Friday and thanks for being here. Happy Coolest Friday, handle on Twitter. Coolest <laughs> handle. It doesn't get better, man. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Craw. Yeah. He's awesome. He's, he's He has the same level of humility when I knew him as an analyst, as a chief operating and now president. He's just uh, an incredible person. And Speaking of incredible people, we only invite incredible, big mind, awesome authors on the show. And uh, that's no exception with our next guest, Rebecca Fannin, journalist at CNBC and author of The Silicon Heartland. Rebecca is journalist and author and, and a media entrepreneur who has covered global innovations for more than 20 years. She started when she was 15. Rebecca began her career at <laughs> Dayton Journal Herald. Then from a reporter cube, a cubicle at Crane Communication in Manhattan to the highest, hottest dot-com magazine, Red Herring in San Francisco, ventured to Beijing and Shanghai and became one of the first American journalists to document China's entrepreneurial rise. Inspired by tech founders, uh, Rebecca interviewed, uh, uh, formed, I'm sorry, Rebecca formed Silicon Dragon Ventures as her own media and events group. Rebecca became a regular contributor to CNBC and her articles also appear at Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Inc. Magazine, Forbes, and all the other uh, important media outlets. Uh, in, in her new book, Silicon, uh, I'm sorry, in her new book, uh, Silicon Heartland, Transforming the Midwest, Midwest from Rust Belt to tech belt. That's what we're going to be talking about talking about today. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter at rfannin, F-A-N-N-I-N. Welcome, Rebecca, to Disrupt TV. Uh, thank you. That was some intro. <laughs> thank you for being here. I had to shorten hey, your bio. We only have 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we have great guests, and their intros are always amazing, and I, I, Vala has the best intros in the business. So, But hey, what? You know, this is a very important book. Right, we're talking about deglobalization. We're talking about bringing manufacturing back. You just heard from IDC, from Crawford, talking about manufacturing renaissance that's actually happening. Right, um, I can't say I really grew up in the heartland. I was in Eastern Pennsylvania, but I might say maybe it's close. Uh, what's the main driver of the Rust Belt's rebirth? I mean, what factors are coming back? Well, definitely timing is on its side. For the longest time, this area has been known as flyover country, rust belt land, no need to go there. Uh, all the action is in Silicon Valley or Boston or New York. So that started to change um, and sped up during COVID for sure. So we saw remote working a play a factor and you know talent moving into these cities uh, from Silicon Valley where 
things became overpriced and jobs were not here and people could do the jobs anywhere. So I think that this has contributed to this Heartlands revival. Uh, we've seen a lot of new venture funding going in uh, from new firms like Drive Capital in Columbus and High Alpha in Indianapolis and Magarac in Pittsburgh. So four times more venture capital spending than 10 years ago. And a lot yeah, of I mean, these Steve, places are Steve Case out. was pushing this for a long time, right? I mean, Steve Case was yeah. pushing this very, very, very long ago. So, yeah. Yeah, rise of the rest, definitely. Right, and right, right. Um, so um, I have actually spent a lot of time in the heartland going from market to market and doing grassroots research in my Honda element, driving all over the heartland, <laughs> like <laughs> 26 cities um, during COVID. And so I got to interview... Uh, everyone it seemed like uh, the mayors the politicians the business leaders the town champion wow. the entrepreneurs the venture investors it was very easy to get these interviews because <laughs> nobody was traveling and i was traveling in the region and they were glad to meet me as long as we had social distancing you know and we wore a mask so it was great timing uh, to do this uh, project that's amazing. So you're in the Honda Pilot driving to 26 different cities and locations. Is there one that stands out? What's the most impressive interview or city or place that you visited? And it's amazing. You just, if I had heard correctly, you said 4X more investments in technologies. That's, yeah. That's pretty, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Four times more venture capital investment than 10 years ago. And so there's still a big gap between the heartland and the three coastal cities, but it's narrowing. And I think it's only going to take more time, more success stories out of the heartland before it becomes to really become, you know, this hub that everybody talks about. Yeah. And so anyhow, um, the city that most impressed me, um, well, you know, it was interesting because uh, I hadn't been back to spend a lot of time in the heartland since I had left like 20 years ago wow. for a career in New York and Silicon Valley and over in China. So coming back and seeing it with fresh eyes was kind of rewarding, actually. And I was really surprised by some of the technology that I saw in Pittsburgh, uh, in Columbus. I'm, I'm from the Columbus area and Columbus has totally changed from its whole reputation of Caltown. <laughs> which is how we knew it growing up. And, uh, you know, today uh, you see a uh, new Albany area attracting a lot of new investment uh, from Intel, its own Silicon Heartland story. Um, that's 30 miles from my hometown in Lancaster. Oh, wow. oh, and, um, you know, in Pittsburgh, uh, the rustiest probably of the Rust Belt cities is totally transformed now as a tech town uh, with AI and robotics. So some of the drivers of this innovation are the universities, uh, for instance, Carnegie oh, yeah. Mellon University, uh, Ohio University, Ohio State University in Columbus, and so forth. So there's a lot of drivers of innovation. It's not just the talent of venture capital, but it's the universities. It's the companies that are there, the, the institutions like Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland. Um, you know, that's a major driver of biotech innovation in the Cleveland city. Uh, which, you know, also was a very rusty city, industrial city. And so all of these cities are in transition. And uh, to me, it was rather surprising to see it up close and personal. I can feel the sense of pride in how you describe going back and finding this incredible transformation 
from a rust belt to a tech belt. So I, I can just sense it as you're speaking about it. So it must have been a, a joyful experience writing your book. It was. It was like a cultural homecoming in a way. When people would speak, I would automatically understand what they were saying before they would finish the sentence. You know, this is not something that I was used to in New York City or Silicon Valley or China or anywhere you know that I was covering previously. So to me, it was kind of heartwarming, and um, you know, I related very well to their stories and their hard work and their diligence and um, uh, just the true grit. Uh, <laughs> Uh, of this region, which um, was very similar to China, the kind of grit that I saw in China, to the kind of ambition, grit. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, right? I mean, we, we see the um, we see the Silicon Heartland as a place that we're actually going uh, to see compete with manufacturing in China. That landscape is yeah. going to look very different in this deglobalization environment. We've got a lot more automation, a lot more technology that's coming in play. Like, yeah. how do you see that playing out? Like, in terms of you know where technology and how the Heartland is going to be able to be a place. Uh, to compete with China. Yeah, well, you see the CHIPS Act is, is spending a lot more money for semiconductors and you know that money is going into places like Intel in, around the Columbus area. So advanced manufacturing and robotics and AR playing and uh, 3D printing are playing a big part of manufacturing today. So manufacturing has become very techy. And you know that's the uh, heartland heritage is manufacturing. Uh, so to me, that was another surprising element of doing the research for this book is that uh, I really discovered how connected uh, the region still is to manufacturing and how technology can play a part in helping it transform. Yeah, I mean, it's a place where you make things, right? I mean, big yeah. engineering schools, cold weather, lots of beer means lots of innovation. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's so, right. So, you're, you, you know, you, you, you traveled extensively in the process of writing the book and you met, obviously, you, you saw incredible places and in transformation. Did you, do, do you think there's a possibility for the next Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk to come from the Rust Belt? Is there a particular person or, 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 or uh, ambition and grit and vision that you experienced uh, as, you were, as you were learning about this transformation that's happening? I haven't really met the Steve Jobs of the Heartland yet or the Jack Ma of the Heartland yet. Or the Jack Ma, right, right. Yeah, right. or Jack Ma. You know, before that, my uh, book, Tech Times of China, <laughs> it came out in 2019. So... You know, that had uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent in it. Wow. And uh, I really haven't met the comparable person yet in the heartland. Um, but uh, I think they will uh, They will um, be there. It takes a matter of self-confidence uh, that we haven't really seen quite enough of yet in the heartland. You know, in Silicon well, Valley, you know, yeah, everyone's well, boasting in Silicon Valley and talking about their startups. And people in the Midwest are very humble. They yeah. don't go around bragging about themselves. Yeah. So is it possible you may have met her, but she was so humble and she was so <laughs> great at listening and being interested in you that they just didn't uh, show the, 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 the intellectual horsepower and vision that may be there? <laughs> uh, it could be. It could yeah. very well be. And, you know, and the venture capital side, too. There's, there's, yeah. there's a lot of talent uh, from uh, in the venture capital space in the heartland. Yeah. And, um, you know, the capital is growing around there and I'm seeing a lot of new funds being formed in these regional innovation hubs. And, you know, this whole idea of 
uh, build back better, that's spending, that's putting a lot more money into these regional innovation hubs. And each one of these uh, technology zones has its own specialty. So that's we another did. thing that struck me in, in the research of this is that each, it wasn't just a universal technology. Yeah. Each place had its own specialty. Wow. Yeah, you know, I think part of it is really in the in the opportunity zone funding, right? These OZs are really hotbeds that a lot of people haven't discovered. Um, talk a little bit about, about some of these OZs and, and why they're differentiated, uh, because we see a lot of investors now starting to look at opportunity zones, uh, looking at investment uh, portfolios in opportunity zones. Uh, I spent some time with uh, with a couple of investors, I'd say, in the last few weeks that are trying to figure out the theses to, to operate there, but there are already lots of companies in there, so... Well, that's true. You know, I started my journalism career in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, at the Journal Herald, uh, working on the morning newspaper, doing the night shift on the morning newspaper. Well, Dayton, you know, uh, was in complete meltdown economically after many of its industries left. And and the whole town, the whole downtown became an opportunity zone. Yeah, so, Montgomery County is a full opportunity zone. It's, it's huge. So. Yeah, it's huge. And so, you know, money has gone into that. And I interviewed the mayor of Dayton and uh, she actually ran for governor of Ohio, Nan Whaley. So she's a superstar. Um, she helped to turn Dayton around. And of course, Dayton has the advantage of having the Air Force uh, mm -hmm. research laboratory there. And uh, that's a, a lot of military innovation around Dayton. So I, I was very keen on Dayton for that reason. And the, and like you said, this opportunity zone, rebuilding industrial parks, um, opening up uh, old warehouses and turning them into tech towns. That's happening throughout the, throughout the heartland. You see all these old industrial areas being transformed. What's keeping you from moving into Ohio? So Yeah, San Francisco and New York, you're on the edges. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, um, I have to admit, I do miss traveling overseas. Um, so I hope to get back to that at some point, but I'm, I'm not quite sure I'm ready to move back to Ohio. Uh, certainly it's my homeland, my family. I still have family there. I go back often and actually I've been back quite a bit more in the last two years. And I will on the book tour as well. Uh, so awesome. We have a book tour planned throughout stops oh, and all awesome. of these. Yeah, so you know, I, I'm not going to move back immediately, but yeah, I've thought about it. What can the entrepreneurs from the heartland learn from the best and brightest entrepreneurs in China? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think it's um, uh, never stop. Um, hmm. Hard never work. Stop. Yeah, hard work, hmm. never stop. Um, and, um, you know, the Chinese tech entrepreneurs continue to uh, uh, be an amazing group. Uh, what, uh, what China did in a short period of time um, in the tech space, uh, I don't think it's going to be replicated wow. uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, but um, I think, um, yeah, it's a real example of um, what to do. And, um, you know, I'm not going to get into political issues here, sure, but sure. in terms of the tech innovation um, and uh, the power of some of these tech titans that arise that have arisen out of China, there's really very little comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible hard work, optimism, uh, community. I see a lot of promise in India. I see India's transformation over the last decade is incredible. But yeah, uh, some of the That's companies true. that you mentioned in your book. 
are, are remarkable companies. And yeah, I, I, I've written I about India too in my book, Startup Asia. Oh, uh, Asia. Fair amount of time in India. No, Rebecca so, is one of the foremost experts on hot spots for innovation, and and it's it's amazing. I mean, taking the global picture today, looking at you know all the different regional innovations, uh, where would you bet on next? Right? Is it the Silicon Heartland? Would it be what's happening in Indonesia? Right? In terms of Indonesia and Vietnam, as they pick up from you know the, the war against China and the U.S. versus China war, uh, could it be somewhere in the south of uh, Spain? Right? Where we're seeing some innovation zones pop up, or would it be Latin America? I mean, innovation is no longer just in a certain concentrated area, as as you've been talking about and chronicling for years. Yeah, Southeast Asia is really coming on strong. And uh, Indonesia is leading that, I think. Uh, there's a lot of uh, emerging giants uh, coming out of places like um, Jakarta, Jakarta, Singapore, um, Ho Chi Minh City, and um, Bangalore, for instance. And uh, those, um, those, um, those companies uh, could be giants um, because the markets are so huge in Asia. And uh, they can sell within their own markets. They may not go global, but they can sell within their own markets and, and become yeah. giants. So, yeah, I, I I, I'm very keen on Southeast Asia. And, you know, a lot of attention has been drawn away from China and has moved into places like Singapore. I love that quote from John Chambers. No place or company is immune from getting disrupted and Silicon yeah. Valley is no different. I mean, that is a huge statement. It is. So. It is. You have to change or you're going to be disrupted. And and that's what the heartland, I think, uh, you know, has realized. And they and that's one of the main drivers. And I think John Chambers nailed it. He's from West Virginia, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's one of the people who's giving back to the region. This is another factor. These count up what I call town champions, people who give back, who succeeded. And now yeah. JC, too. Yeah, JC Two Ventures. Uh, you think about what's happening in Detroit uh, with uh, who is it at uh, Microsoft, uh, the the former CEO. So the investment that's going on with uh, from TurboTax into it uh, back in the day, all those folks over there. So oh, sure. I mean, that's it's yeah. huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Brad Smith in in uh, in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. Yeah. Um, Morgantown, yeah. And uh, yeah, actually, he became president of Marshall University after running into it. <laughs> so we moved back to West Virginia, his hometown. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. My final question so, to you, Rebecca: What? Are, what? Are, what? Are the, what are, can you share some key success factors for startups? We have lots of startup entrepreneurs that watch the show, so we'd love to have your guidance in terms of what you believe to be yeah. key success factors. Well, I think I really have a clear mission mm. and a clear conviction. Uh, that uh, you can make a difference and that your technology can work and, and can scale up. I think, you know, having that, having that heart into it uh, is probably the most important thing. I love that. I love that. Wow, this is this is amazing. It's a book about rebirth. It's a book about where America can be. Uh, this is super, super exciting from someone that's been chronicling this around the world. We're here with Rebecca Fannin, author of Silicon Heartland. You can follow her on Twitter at rfannin. More importantly, catch her book. It's March. When is it in March that it comes out? March so. 7th. Oh, March seventh. She's already got the coffee in her hand. That's like the best. <laughs> is it the galley or is it the real one? So this is the author coffee. Oh, the love that. Coffee. Congratulations. 
Congratulations. We look forward to yeah, seeing you on you. tour. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Ray. And thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Happy Friday. Yeah, you know, uh, rise of the rest. I mean, if you've been watching Steve Case for years, he's been advocating the incredible uh, rebirth of, uh, of you know, states outside of the coast or inside of the coast. Okay. No, no. And people, oh yeah. And people like Doug Burgum. I mean, they basically at Microsoft rebuilding what's happening in North Dakota, amazing stuff in Fargo. I mean, we're, we're seeing this all around the world where tier two, tier three cities are picking up from tier one cities who people are putting priced out of and, and, and all the factors are coming back. So very, very exciting. So. Ray, if this was Saturday night, Saturday night live, our next guest Ooh. would be here with a 10 jacket. He would have like a tan jacket. <laughs> John Reed is the founder, co-founder of Diginomica, and uh, he's been covering enterprise space since 1995. I love reminding John how long he's been doing what he's been doing. His signature weekly column, Enterprise Hits and Misses, covers core areas, including customer experience, pursuit of analytics, and uh, ROI work, future skills development, and realities of transformation efforts. It's all about case studies. If John John has to have tangible proof that things are actually doing what they say they're doing. And so he's an amazing follow on Twitter at John ERP, J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome back. Again, another first ballot Hall of Fame inductee to Disrupt TV, John Reed. Yeah, welcome wow, okay. back. And we're going to have to go in this format because of you. <laughs> Woo, excellent. All right, I, I like it. By the way, I, I have to warn you, I, I have this, my BS detector button handy because <laughs> Ray's going to be careful definitely. because of some oh of the my topics God, I'm about to get roasted I'm about to get well, roasted here well just because of some of the topics you want me to talk about I'm, I'm prepared but I, I figure after the last two guests we're done learning let's have some fun those guests were awesome so <laughs> yeah yeah no 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 we, we, oh. of course we have you here for learning as well but you're <laughs> one of our most fun guests um, so thank you for coming back go ahead Ray you sure. get the first question <laughs> I'm not even going to bother. I think I'm about to get roasted. What do you want to know about Davos, John? <laughs> well, you're the one that proposed this as a topic, and I thought that was a little bit unusual because you were there and I was not. Um, but but um, I'm happy to talk about it a little bit. And shall, to, to kick things off, shall I read what I wrote about this in my enterprise? I think you I should said, read what he, you wrote. He writes, Davos said, is not what you would call a practical event. This year's yeah. session invoked the same contradictions, an elite group trying to solve problems that, by definition, require a broader type of participation. <laughs> there you go. Is that what you're about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there oh you go. So, no, but, um, but you do you want to talk about a few things that were interesting? Do, in no, I'm, ha I'm happy to talk about the show. And actually, it's it's a really important show. And I did identify a couple of takeaways that I think from the show that are really um uh, meaningful and 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 I don't mean to say you're elite in a bad way because you were there. I'm just raise the I'm just, the lead. Raise I'm just jealous I didn't get. I'm just jealous I didn't get invited. And I didn't get to eat that chicken, that that United chicken or whatever. So um, what do you want to talk about with Davos? What were your key takeaways? You talked about one yeah. What are your key takeaways? Yeah. Tokenization solving real world problems. Well, okay, so there's, there. I mean, there's so many topics you could hit on. I mean, I know you wanted to maybe talk about greenwashing at some point because there was a lot of sustainability conversations. But I mm -hmm. thought, like, the, the, the thing about Davos that really stuck stuck with me, um, it, it came out around this notion of the, uh, it was a CNN article I read talking about sort of this, this awareness of sort of 
global instability as as a backdrop against the kinds of business challenges that we want to address and this sort sort of this notion of resiliency right because like who knows what's going to happen next right and one of the things that really jumped out was a growing consensus that supply chains should be shorter and if possible production should be located in countries seen as allies with shared values a reversal of decades-long efforts to make goods as quick and cheap as possible. I just think this is a really interesting concept because it points to this question, are, are we going to be like kind of paying a premium to do things the right way? And what are all the consequences of that in terms of uh, just global uh, collaboration and also cost of goods? Will shareholders put up with that? I mean, you think about it from like a Southwest perspective, because I think that's going to end up being one of the biggest tech stories of, of the year, even though it was last year, where uh, Southwest knew they had a problem, right? It's just that they didn't want to take the shareholder hit from addressing the problem, and then they wound up with a much worse problem, right? But I think it's sort of a similar concept, right? Which is, are we going to pay a premium to do things the right way, or are we going to continue to try to skate in this in this sort of efficiency that always ends up catching us right whether it's the war in ukraine or whether it's COVID or whether it's tech debt like there's always something lurking and i think there's a growing realization that that's the that's the case and so we're at a crossroads here and i'm not sure what's going to happen but i think it's really interesting yeah no it's a great point i mean it's why ceos are only there for three to four years no i'm just kidding um yeah <laughs> they're just moving there. they're just, just keeping the, balls past in the, the air. hot potato basically <laughs> yeah they're keeping the balls in the air but, but uh, you know I, that's a really great question on, on a deeper level if we do deglobalize supply chains everything's going to cost more right and right. and the backdrop of that is the fact that we've got um, g7 versus BRICS. Right. The BRICS are playing a different game than the G7 and the alliances that are being created are pretty complicated. It's no longer U.S. versus China. It's no longer, you know, even just West versus East. It's G7 versus BRICS. Developing companies, countries with uh, growing populations are suddenly realizing their power uh, and, and their heft in, in the economy. And, and that's the backdrop um, that moving to globalization. What Rebecca was talking about. Right. Manufacturing is moving. To, to a much localized environment and the supply chains have to come with it. It's not like you can just take a plant and move it. It's like, hey, we're gonna build hundred million iPhones in like uh, the US. That's not gonna happen because we don't have all the supply chain and all the tooling and everything that's required to do that. So it doesn't happen like that. So, so that notion of deglobalization is, is real and it's really weird for that to happen in Davos because that is the place for globalization. That has been the place for where people have been trying to build these new economic models uh, and, and now they've got to rethink that. And so you're right. Was I mean, it, it's very was, bizarre. Was so. the tone more positive this year than last? I, I saw a dozen or so CEO interviews and I felt there was more pragmatic optimism in terms of what they were speaking to in the, for the next 12 to 24 months. Did you feel that there or no? Was did you feel? I more? felt that May Davos, the one in the spring, everybody was trying to psych ourselves into a recession. By the time we showed up at, here in January, people were like, if that was the recession, we're not sure what it is. We're still waiting for it. So you know what? We're going to be really practical about it. Right. And, and you're right about that. But what did it look like from your view, John? I mean, from the outside, was it, did it look like people were optimistic? Were people still pessimistic? Did people see like a ray of hope somewhere? I think it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I think I think there's a sense that that we are experiencing some profound transformations that that create opportunities. But but there's also this acknowledgement, which I kind of found refreshing, that that so, so a big part of the reason why I can appear like grouch. There's two reasons why I appear grouchy around technology. Um, I, I actually really believe in the in transformation. If I didn't, I, I couldn't do this anymore. It would just yeah. be 
just be BS. But um, what what I think was important in Davos was the recognition of how technology, culture, process, geopolitics, it's all part of the same thing. And I think that's actually refreshing, but it can be a little sobering because that, that brings a pretty broad landscape to conquer. But, but I do think there were some really interesting things going on there as far as realizations of like, yeah, you know, we actually can attack these problems in new ways and and a growing sense of cooperation like 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 not necessarily amongst enemy countries but amongst businesses in the same industry and that was a big theme and one of the panels i saw that sap was on around like christian klein the sap ceo talking about this notion of competitors being willing to share more information than they have in the past because of a, a collective sense that they have to advance this together. Now, I don't think that's going to happen overnight, but but I do think that those things are, are encouraging, and maybe that's where a little bit of the optimism is coming from, is a sense that we're all in the same boat. We have to quit beating each other up all the time. Now, while at Davos, Mr. Wong hosted a Metaverse panel. Oh, geez. Um, so we're gonna, I'm going to switch uh, <laughs> gears to... It's still Davos, but it's Davos and Metaverse. Um, oh, boy. Uh, in, in a, in a Digitomica article recently published, I think last week, ABI predicts that the industrial Metaverse market could grow to almost $100 billion by the end of this decade, 2030, compared to $50 billion for consumer version and $30 billion for enterprise collaboration. So companies are using it to roll out electric cars, uh, streamline supply chains, design factories in the future, while ban- balancing this financial costs and carbon emissions. What is industrial metaverse? And, and can you talk to us about this bold prediction that is 2x yep. what we okay. believe to be the consumer metaverse that matters? Right. Okay. Well, I, first of all, I have a couple of problems with that article. I didn't write it um, and I would have yes. framed it a little bit differently. But having said that, I have a general problem with these extravagant things around $1 trillion this, $3 yeah. billion that. And the, the, the reason for that is that those figures are always subject to revision. And the problem is that it sounds like we're all going to make a lot of money. And that's not true. It's a winners and losers scenario. And a lot of the winners in that will be things like infrastructure, technology, equipment providers, consultants of various flavors from famous firms. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to achieve that ROI impact. Yes, and, but, but and, just to give Mr. Yep. Lawton credit, he did cite yes. uh, Siemens Digital Industries grew right. revenue by 25% in yes. the last two years by right. consolidating yep. its various tools into the industrial metaverse. So just right. like every Digitonomica good article, there's always yeah, use yeah, yeah. cases. There was, there was a use case in there. The problem right now is that those are a little bit in, in short supply. I want to read you a, a, a quote that uh, I want to ask you, you. You tell me if you can guess. Who said this? Uh, this is a quote. Overall, the metaverse is almost entirely hype and baloney right now. If you're worried about your company needing to jump in right this very minute to make your metaverse play, you can stop worrying. Who do you think said that? Any guess? Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Good try. <laughs> Philip Rosedale, whose company Linden Labs created the pioneering virtual civilization Second Life. You think he knows a thing or two about what he's talking about? And nah, so, nah. so look, so. so so, so look, this notion of preparing yourself for something is one of our favorite things to do. And that's not necessarily a problem. It's actually good. It's just that what you're going to prepare yourself for is very company and industry specific. For example, are you going to prepare yourself for 5G, IoT sensors, uh, industrial metaverse, uh, blockchain, Web3? Are you going to do all those things at the same time? 
while you're contending with these intractable problems around data and customer experience and everything else, no, you're going to prioritize. So that's why we have to use these terms with precision. And actually, I reject the term metaverse. Um, so, Ooh. so, so I don't even agree with the term. Um, there, is there's it, a couple. John, is it is it interactive digital twin when we're talking about uh, industrial yeah, yeah. metaverse? So, so right. So, so here's a couple problems. First, my first problem is that when you say the word metaverse, you're essentially giving Zuckerberg and Accenture credit for technologies they didn't develop, create, or mature. And there's a lot of pioneers in these fields that deserve a lot more credit because when you peel the term back, a lot of the technology we're talking about are AR. VR and virtual yeah. twins. They all have yeah. deep histories. They've been evolving over a long time. They are not exploding out of the gate in the last year. Even digital twins go back to 2002, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so, so that's one of the first things. Now, now the other thing we need to do, get a little more precise, and then I'll tell you why I, 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 I embrace a different term. First of all, metaverse is not web three. Metaverse is not decentralization. Metaverse is not blockchain. It's, it could be those things but it's not the questions that i want to see people asking for example are how do you define it like for me like i define the metaverse in more of a zuckerberg sense in the sense that i think the metaverse should be viewed as first of all something that's immersive something that's interactive and something that we do a lot of the things that we do in the real world but in a different virtual place which includes forms of commerce that might be digital currency it might not but there would be a form of commerce in play and there are um environments like this that do exist and especially in the gaming and stuff like that they're some of them are making a lot of money um so so to me that is is the metaverse when you read the industrial metaverse stuff you're talking about there a lot of that is digital twins and 3d simulations um one of the things we have to think about when we think about the metaverse are things like Immersion, equipment, and avatars. So when you think about immersive experiences, they can be very powerful, but they also come at a premium, right? Because when I'm immersing, I can't do something else. Mm. Um, you know, and so like, like, like for example, augmented reality, like when you're driving, you have your GPS on. That's great, but you're also Ray's also making a phone call while he's driving. He's, he's probably got the show. He's, he's got show. he's got two phone calls on. He's not <laughs> you know our immersion. Our immersive time is precious, and so we have to justify a business case around immersion, and we also have to justify a business case around equipment and adoption, right? So, so those are the reasons why I have some issues with the term. What, what term do I accept? I accept the term gestating multiverse. Now you can get rid of the, you can get rid of the, you know, oh, gestating multiverse, hang on. Sorry, the paper fell to the ground. Yeah. Just stating multiverse. <laughs> so now, now you don't you don't have to say the word gestating. I realize I'm asking too much there, but 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 you do have to you do have to use the word multiverse. Why? Because all these are separate environments with separate standards. We need interoperability if we're going to have a metaverse. I don't feel like giving companies credit for a metaverse when their multiverses can't communicate with each other. Now there are right. companies that are there are companies that are trying to solve this problem like Nvidia. So uh, Nvidia has the something called an, perhaps <laughs> yes an omniverse. What do you know? It's kind of like a multiverse, but it's got a different flavor. But you, you get my drift. Like there's there's like there's a way of talking about these concepts that help us to understand what maturity level we're in. And once we understand right. that, we can actually dig into it. And in fact, I pulled up a really interesting article today 
from from a site called Unity, and the article was essentially Unity. an overview of the impact of digital twins on various industries. And oh, there's yeah. actually a whole lot of very, very compelling examples from aircraft inspection and maintenance. And, you know, you just named the industry automotive, 3D car design, aut autonomous uh, driving John, simulations. Where, 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 where is the TCP IP for the Internet or the HTTP for the web? What's the who's the right. governing body and the protocol that allows this interoperability of the verses? Right. Like, where is that? That's, yeah. See, that's the problem is that we don't have that no, yet. No, no, but, there's, a, but, there's an open metaverse alliance, John. I met I met uh, Dirk yeah. Luth. That's what he does. So. Yeah, yeah. No, no, there is. It yeah. is there. It's the problem is yeah. it, you have to watch the players involved and see if they converge I mean, upon that alliance. IEEE is putting standards together right now. Yeah, exactly. So. so at least there's an awareness of the problem, right? Five years um, away, but, Ray? But, Ten years away? Three, actually. Three. But the point, the point is that like a two... A two, if you want to talk about a two billion dollar economy, you better have that stuff sorted out first. And yeah. and so I just I just want to just be a little more clear about the fact that that we're still in that gestating space. But that doesn't mean there's not interesting use cases. I would just prefer to talk about them as digital twin use cases, not as metaverse use cases. Now I think there's some really interesting metaverse use cases. As I was doing this research, one of the things that I was reminded of is how powerful immersive experiences are in a sales context for complex items right oh, like yeah. like like everything like if you want to buy a plane for example wouldn't you want to like go around the plane and like f and go inside and stuff yeah you would of course you would you know the yeah. same thing with certain kinds of commercial real estate um you know and and so you can Luxury certainly imagine properties even residential real estate the, the the process of buying a home and feeling comfortable enough to drive to the location and actually physically see it those they don't exist today. It's absolutely but if, service and plants. Right. But if you look at the, the two, the two um, uh, industries that, that really push these envelopes the most are gaming and military. Now, I can't speak to a lot of military stuff because I don't have the clearances. Maybe Ray does. But on, on, on the gaming side, one thing that's interesting is that is that when you look at something like, like a Roblox, not my favorite company, but hugely popular with young people, they don't require you to put on a bunch of gear and all that kind of stuff. They have some VR stuff and they have a couple blockchain games, but you don't have to do that stuff. You can just do it on your phone. And I think one of the things we have to sort of be mindful of is, is when we talk about revolutionary technology, we have to have a pretty high standard. The reason the mobile phone is revolutionary is that almost everyone on the planet has it. I mean, I, I hate to say this because this is really sobering, but I see people on the streets in my town all the time watching their mobile phones while they're trying to stay warm in their sleeping bags at night. That's a pretty ubiquitous technology at that point. Yeah. Um, we're nowhere near that with, with, with metaverse scenarios yet. And so we just need to just be a little more humble, I think, around, around how we use these terms. That's all. My last question all right, about quick. humility oh, and te technology. Sorry. Um, a very recent uh, Diginomica article talking about generative AI. Not going to mention any company names or anything. Oh, yeah. But uh, some of the things I saw in the article has no customers in production yet, gets massive unicorn valuation, is being run by kids with no business <laughs> backgrounds. And, and at the, towards the end, the paragraph blowing through mountains of cash should never be a tech company core competency and it never should be a source of pride. How excited are you about generative AI? <laughs> uh, well, I'm a. <laughs> By the way, you really didn't write one. this. 
I'm yeah, just, I, I didn't write that one, a but I'm founder of the company. So, yeah. I didn't write that one, but I wish I'm I had. You have to approve um, our articles. No, I do not. Um, we we actually we, but uh, I approve of that one though. That's for damn sure. Um, look, look, look. Look, AI is powerful stuff. I mean, one of the things that that um, that I believe in is that you know there's this whole hype cycle. Not everything ever comes out into the plateau of productivity. AI is something else entirely. I, I was trying to think of a term for it. It's like the mountain of malevolent magnificence, or something like like a, AI <laughs> is like it's the it's auto magical mountain of malevolent yeah, magnificence. It, it's it's <laughs> AI is big and it's real and it's something we have to contend with. And there are very powerful use cases, but there's also very very concerning mm -hmm. use cases because obviously one of the weaknesses of the what what we have right now when we talk about AI is a very specific form of AI that yeah. has advanced to a very high degree. And that form yeah. of AI is very very good at at huge training sets and then spitting that data back out in, 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 in different ways. It's not very good at truth and it's not very good at reasoning. And so as a result of that, it's very good at putting out misinformation at scale. And so when you evaluate it AI use cases, yes, exactly. And so like, for example, we're looking into recently, like how Russia tried to influence the last election with a bunch of misinformation now bad actors can use tools like this and do that at a much greater scale yeah. and magnitude than they could before well, they learned from so, the russian training set <laughs> right yeah it, exactly so so the best way to the best way to think about this type of ai from a use case perspective is how accurate do you need it to be if you need it to be a hundred percent accurate, it, it's going to fall short and it's going to cause problems. And that's why you can look at all the setbacks it's had with autonomous driving, because this form of AI isn't, isn't a hundred percent and it can't, because it can't anticipate new scenarios. Yeah. So the same thing would be true for like medicine, for example, you don't, you, you know, if, if you're going to have a, a medical diagnosis. So anyway, the whole point there is if, if it's not, if it doesn't have to be perfectly accurate, then it can be great. And so things like pricing and, and and you know real time, you know customer experience stuff, all that. There's all kinds of AI use cases. And if the human cool. life isn't on the other end of it, right? That's yeah. the other. It's yeah. not based on so. grounded truth. Yeah, absolutely. So we're here with John. Are Reed, we out of time? Founder at Diginomica. Unfortunately, yes. we're you know, off. We need to have a one-hour special, Ray. We need to have a one-hour special. One hour <laughs> with the Diginomica team. That would be pretty <laughs> wild. Yeah. Okay. We should That's do right. that. So John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica. You can follow him at John ERP. And we won't be talking about greenwashing on this episode, but I'm sure we will in the future. So thanks a lot, John. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, John. Thank we'll you. see you in the green room. Is there a more prepared guest than John? I mean, <laughs> definitely more prepared uh, than we were. We're, we're, we're. I mean, he writes in advance his thoughts. Yep. Uh, super coherent, super. That's why he's a media company co-founder. That's pretty, pretty awesome. Wow, Crawford, Rebecca, John, uh, Ray, do us a favor and give us a one-minute summary of what you just heard in the past hour. I don't think I can. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, no. The Craw Crawford basically said, "Look, the state of IT, it's still going to grow. We're normalizing. This is kind of where the market is. Some massive trends are in play." Um, and as we get to digitalization, there's things that we just can't do. Like we have to fund this, right? Um, and it really touched on the edge, right? As we got to Rebecca, it was really interesting to see some of these trends actually manifest, right? During her journeys through COVID, right? She's discovering that, wait, there's this brand new area of opportunity that's happening. And there's also a sociological demographic shift happening as yeah. people are leaving expensive areas, lockdown cities, they're moving to freedom states, they're moving to places that 
they have a cost of living, a family approach, right? And, and suddenly all this innovation in like university towns and tech centers and places that were industrial giants are coming back because of policies that are happening that happened around globalization that has failed, right? Yeah. So, so you had a very, very interesting story behind, you know, what's happening in Silicon Heartland. Right. And I got John poo pooing me about Davos and industrial. <laughs> we're, we're all jealous of those amazing selfies you had with titans of industry. Just about. Every, no, no, no. I don't know. John you, is as like pragmatic. CEO of Fortune 100 uh, companies were all taking photos with Ray. So that was pretty cool. That was no, no, we had some fun there. But, but Davos was really an interesting story about what was happening and just kind of a, a place that was disconnected from the, disjointed from the rest of the reality of the world. Right. I mean, there was no, it was the Davos agenda versus, you know, the public trust. And, and there was no public trust. And you could see that and feel that. And people are starting to realize that it's true. So, so yeah, but anyways, yeah, back to John. I mean, always insightful analysis and really calling it like it is. And so we can't beat that. But hey, we've got to go. We're out of time. So we are. Uh, next week, please join us. Uh, Christina Villavanves, CEO of Cladera, David Boyle, Director of Audience Strategies, and Jennifer Moss, an author of a new book, Burnout Epidemic. So it'll be episode 309 next Friday. If it is Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next week. Take care.